the way I operate things on this show is that one week I pick the movie and then for the next episode I have the guests pick the movie. And I do this for a couple of reasons. For one thing, it seems fair and the guests are always friends and family members that I strong arm into this thing. So at least it keeps them nominally engaged. Another one of the reasons that having the guests pick the movie every now and again puts me in a position where I have to approach a work that I wouldn't ordinarily choose on my own volition. And this episode is an example. I probably would never pick the uh, Selena biopic if I was the only person who determined the topics. I don't usually care for biopics of iconic musicians. I tend to find them creakily formulaic. I find that they take the interesting aspects of the creative process and sort of sand them down in order to create a more um, accessible narrative. And I often feel that the biopics are sterilized, especially when the musician's estate or the musician themselves are involved in it. That being said, the 1997 Selena film, made less than two years after she died, was a very important film to my siblings. That's why Sylvan picked it. I brought it up to uh, Sarah and Cheryl before we were going to start this episode, and Cheryl told me that I wouldn't be doing my job properly if I didn't bring up that when she was growing up, Selena was something of a rite of passage amongst people in her age bracket. Like, at some point, you watch that film at a slumber party. I don't know if that is just something that is within my social circle or this is a nationwide thing. Oh, it's a very big thing. I wouldn't have pegged Selena as like a developmental film for the millennial generation, but hey, maybe it is. Oh, it absolutely is. You I, you might have just been dismissive of it because I was a Selena super fan when I was about like 11 and 12, I think was the peak of it. I've always in, enjoyed her since I bumped into her music when I was eight, but I got real, real fixated when I was in middle school. And that was when I was at my most annoying regarding my passions. So I probably called you against her. This is one of the ones where I am way out of my lane. I am probably going to let the guest do more of the heavy lifting than usual. This is <laughs> Selena. My name is Ryan. This is a real deep dive. Joining me is my brother Sylvan. Hello. Hello. As you already mentioned, Selena is a very important artist to you. And while we were watching the film, you gave me an anecdote about your first encounter with her. I, I found it interesting if you could recount it here. All right. So um, I have a very clear memory of the first time I saw the music video for I Could Fall in Love With You. I, we were still living in our childhood home on Ash Street in Danvers, and I was alone in the living room, which was a rarity because, you know, the house was always full of kids. So I was able to just pay full attention to VH1 and the music video, and I was just completely enraptured with it. My taste in music at the time, it being the mid-90s, was pretty bleak. Uh, my other favorite band at the time was the Cranberries. And so like this happy, bubbly, poppy music sung by this absolutely beautiful woman, it just completely took me in. And I was just like, oh my God, Selena's my favorite musician. I, I need all of her CDs. I want a Selena poster above my bed. I was just so ecstatic. And then a couple of months later, the 2020 special on the death of Selena aired and my mom was watching it and my heart just broke. I had no idea she was dead, but being a little white kid in a very white town, I wasn't going to hear about a Tejano music singer until after she had died. 
if you're in Gen Z or you're a boomer listening to this for some reason, there was for a hot minute in the early to mid 90s a period where pop music was super, super bleak. You know, this is your Nirvana, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Nine Inch Nails, Smashing Pumpkins period. And other stuff was going on too, but if you're in a particular age bracket, that was all you heard. It didn't stick around for long. They were replaced by Hanson and the Spice Girls real fast, but for a couple of minutes, pop music was real sad. Oh, yes. Very, very sad. And I ate that shit up. But, you know, Selena seemed like a, a break, like something new to me. And I was about like eight or nine years old. So it also seemed revolutionary that pop music should be happy. We are from Massachusetts, so there wasn't that much Garth Brooks in our household. <laughs> Uh, yeah, before we dive into the plot of the film, I thought we should give a very, very brief overview of the singer herself and the type of music she did. Once again, way out of my depth, total white boy, whitest white boy of all time, broad strokes, look up primary sources if you want to lo- learn more, but Selena is considered one of the most prominent mu- uh, musicians in what is known as Tejano music. This is a style that is rooted in northern Mexico and Texas that came to prominence in the mid-19th century. It blends a variety of Mexican and Spanish vocal traditions with rhythms derived from uh, Czech and German culture, particularly waltzes and polkas. For most of its history, it was completely male-dominated. Selena was, if not the first major female artist to break through in that genre, one of the first. And she proved to be one of Tejano Music's core cultural ambassadors. And she was killed just on the cusp of a major American crossover push. A couple of years later, there was what, in the early 2000s, they dubbed the Latin Explosion, where there were these big, massive radio hits for Ricky Martin and Enrique Iglesias and... And Jennifer, Jennifer Lopez. Jennifer Lopez herself. And it is difficult to imagine had Selena lived that she wouldn't have been a major part of that. Uh, I, I like to sometimes imagine the alternate timeline where she'd survived. And I imagine she would have had, a, I, I can't even imagine the extent of the influence she would have had on American music. I mean, she already influenced so many artists. You hear people talk about how, how much they like loved her music and how she affected their style and their performances. And even though she died at 23 and had a very short career, she's still around. She's not Jimi Hendrix, but she's still around. She never went away. Yep. Complicated uh, reasons about that and her legacy. I know there are some lawsuits pending about who should have control over, I don't know, curating her legacy. We can talk about that later if you'd like. Yeah, more on that later, I'm sure. But uh, first, plot recap. Like a lot of iconic musical uh, biopics, this one uses an artist's cultural or commercial apex as a sort of framing device. Recently, Bohemian Rhapsody, they used Queen's triumphant set during Live Aid. And Donny Cash's biopic, Walk the Line, it was when he proposed the June Carter on stage. For this one, it is Selena's performance at the Houston Astrodome. It opens with her performing a disco medley. She's a big Donna Summer nerd and does two of her songs during that. Yeah, this was her last performance. The whole thing was taped and released a couple of times on video and DVD format. I've watched it uh, many times, and they did a stellar job recreating it to the point where you can actually find the details that they fudged. 
Well, when the story starts in particular, we open in 1961 with band leader Abraham Quintanilla and the Dinos. Quintanilla. Quintanilla, sorry. And uh, the Dinos being rejected by a racist restaurant owner for an audition. They later perform at a Mexican nightclub, but they, they, people start chucking bottles at them because they want to do American doo-wop music, and they're in Mexico and don't know any Mexican songs. Oh, they're at a Mexican club. I think they're still in Texas. Uh, in 1981, this is where we cut to, Abraham has wife, Marcella Samora, and their uh, three children, uh, Abraham III, who is known as A.B., Suzette and Selena are living an upper-middle-class life. Impressed by Selena's singing ability, Abraham pushes his children to form a band, which he dubs Selena y los Dinos. The kids are reluctant, but they eventually enjoy performing together after Abraham pushes them. He's not quite as bad as Michael Jackson's dad, but not quite Beyonce's dad. More on that in a bit. He uh, opens a restaurant, which the film frames is mostly a pretext to give Selena a venue to perform, and quits his steady, normal job in order to s- devote himself to it full-time, which Marcella has ambivalent feelings about to be generous. Yeah, her dream was to um, have a nice house in a nice neighborhood and raise her kids, but Abraham is still very much fixated on uh, his dreams of musical success and living them out through his children. The Quintanillas go bankrupt and lose their restaurant, which the film blames on Reaganomics, which is plausible enough, at least by my standing. Yeah, that seems to be their feelings on it in real life. It's come up in interviews and in Selena the series. They move to Corpus Christi, Texas, and Abraham takes the band on the road. Selena performs at a carnival to a tepid reception, which motivates her to begin adding more dance and personality to the act, which the film demonstrates by having Selena and her mom performing like a cumbia dance together, uh, the washing machine in particular, which is one of the things that uh, the filmmakers admit to fabricating. Yeah, the movie's a nice blend between, it's basically a bunch of vignettes of their life strung together, and some of them are pulled from reality, and some of them were invented to be a feel-good moment in a family-focused movie, and the washing machine bit was one of those invented bits. This brings up our patented biopic montage sequence where the group gradually attains more success and they become local celebrities, which is epitomized in the scene where the tour bus gets stuck in a ditch and two super fans end up pulling over to help them out and their bumper gets ripped off trying to pull the van out of the ditch, but they don't mind because they tried to help Selena, which is important Anything to them. for Selena's. That, that's one of those lines that gets repeated at the slumber parties and stuff, the experience you missed out on. Everybody yeah. loves that part. I hadn't seen this movie in 20 years, but that scene was still vivid in my head. We also skipped over the part where Selena debuts her iconic bustier for the first time and Abraham has a meltdown. It's not a bustier, it's a bra with little sprinkly things on it. I imagine that also went over well at the slumber parties. <laughs> In 1990, Selena meets guitarist Chris Perez when he auditions for the band. Abraham dislikes Perez's heavy metal background and accoutrements, but reluctantly accepts him into the group when he agrees to cut his hair, which sets up an amusing montage where, you know, they're trying to cut his hair, and he's like, oh no, I don't want to, let me up. (laughs) Also, for some reason, they cut off his bracelets with wire cutters, and uh, I don't know, when I was a kid, that confused me. I was like, wow, is wearing those kinds of bracelets that much of a commitment? You have to cut them off? 
Perez and Selena, because they're two young, attractive people who are stuck together on a tour bus for seven months out of a year, gradually fall in love, but their relationship is jeopardized when his old band members trash a hotel room, which you mentioned that in the film he's like sort of just sitting there strumming his guitar while, while his knucklehead friends are trashing the hotel room. And you mentioned that, no, no, he was an active participant. Yeah, so a couple of years ago, uh, Chris Perez saw the movie on uh, the Lifetime channel and decided to actually like sit down and watch it and live tweet as he did because, you know, he was involved in making it and he did go to the premiere, but he was still like really grief struck because this movie came out two years after Selena died. So he spent the whole time at the premiere pretty much just like with his head down in grief, having like a mental health episode. So watching it on Lifetime a couple of years ago was his first time actually seeing the movie. And he was engaging with fans and stuff and talking about what happened, what didn't, what he remembered, etc. And he said, yeah, the hotel scene. That did really happen. And I did it. And Selena chewed him out real bad for it. In the movie, it's implied that it was just like acting out because he's afraid that he's not worthy of Selena. And the scene is kind of subdued. But you're the way you related, apparently Perez is like, no, she ripped my head off. Yeah, he said it was very stupid and he never did it again. Abraham threatens to fire Chris, but AB convinces him that Chris is needed for the upcoming tour because they can't find a new guitar player that fast. Also, Chris is a very good guitar player. He was definitely an asset to the band. I'm going to mention this later in more detail, but Perez does a couple of his own guitar parts for real. And yeah, there's one big close-up of him finger-tapping, and finger-tapping is hard. Selena's about to go on a big tour in Mexico, and promoters are worried about Selena's reception there because she's second generation, and her ability to speak Spanish with the natural accent is limited. But her charismatic, bubbly personality quickly wins the group many fans. Next major scene is a show that almost goes awry when a larger-than-expected crowd, according to the movie, they were expecting 10,000, they got 100,000, rushes the stage, threatening the integrity of the stage, and almost collapses. But uh, Selena capably calms the attendees while drawing them into a joyous performance. This earns her acceptance as an artist for the people. This is also the only point in the movie where J-Lo does any of her own singing. They decide to calm the crowd with a slowed-down opening of the song Camola Flor. And, uh, like, all of the singing in the movie is Selena and J-Lo is lip-syncing, but when she's, like, instructing them to do the slow version, she does sing the words Camola Flor, and that's actually her. And you mentioned that Perez recounted that the scene actually happened and is actually scarier than depicted in the film. Yeah, he said it was terrifying. Yeah, like, like it was Woodstock 99 terrifying. Abraham catches Selena embracing Chris on the tour bus and then angrily fires him. He threatens the rest of the family with the disbanding of the group if they wind up siding with Chris, then makes Selena very distraught. Selena and Chris continue to see each other behind Abraham's back because they're two early 20-somethings who are crazy about each other. They're not going to listen to him. It has become harder to sneak around at this point, though. Selena's become, you know, more famous, and obviously now her dad is watching her like a hawk. This sets up uh, one of the film's more on-the-nose metaphors where she goes bungee jumping and the instructor is just like, hey, you just gotta jump. Metaphor. You gotta let go. The hardest part is letting go. So yeah, Selena and Chris uh, ultimately elope uh, at the uh, Noisa City Courthouse. Selena intends to gently break the news to her family, but a radio station spills the beans. 
The next day, Selena very nervously approaches the family home, uh, but Abraham surprises Selena by respecting her decision and expressing that he desires only her happiness. The Quintanillas readily welcome Chris to their family, and he then rejoins the band. And for a little while, everything's happy. Jose Bihar and the execs at EMI Latin attend a Selena concert and are convinced that she has crossover pop potential. They call her the next Gloria Estefan. They then propose that Selena record an English language album for an American radio push, uh, something that Abraham eagerly accepts. Selena's been dying to do this her whole life, did not actually grow up speaking Spanish or with initial fondness for Spanish language music. She always compared her uh, her singing styles to like mainstream American pop singers like Paula Abdul and uh, Jody Watley and Janet Jackson. So very excited for this. Yeah, there's an early scene where Abraham sits Selena down and instructs her that, you know, it's nice to like Donna Summer and all of that, but you are Mexican-American and that culture is a part of you. and You'd be better off understanding that. And he's also, since, you know, he had bad experiences trying to keep his kids from having to go through that. Selena opens her first Selena etc. boutique. She's also an ambitious fashion designer and asks her fan club president Yolanda Saldivar to manage it. Bum, bum, bum. Selena's uh, album Selena Live wins a Grammy and that pushes the, uh, the label to hasten her English language uh, crossover album attempt. Meanwhile, while talking to Chris, she floats the possibility of them starting a family together using a farm metaphor of all things. Yeah, I don't know. That part was probably invented for the movie, but I haven't heard about it either way. <laughs> in order to congratulate her for her success, a lot of Selena's crew got pitch in to buy her a present. Yolanda says, oh, I have the perfect thing in mind, and later presents her with a ring with a little egg jewel on the front of it, while not mentioning that everyone at the group pitched in to get it. And apparently it's in recognition of Selena's fondness for collecting Fabergé eggs. You couldn't tell if the ring is actually a real thing or it's just made up for the movie. I mean, I, I haven't bumped into a reference to it in, in real-life interviews or anything. Not saying that it wasn't, because I've listened to and read a lot of interviews about Selena and her family, but there's a lot of information out there, too. But it just it feels very, uh, very movie-ish, especially the final framing scene where she drops the ring as she's dying. More on that later. Abraham calls Selena to a meeting where he discusses how irate fans have complained about joining her fan club and paying dues without receiving anything in return. No photographs, no newsletter, no merch, nothing that you associate with fan clubs. An audit of Yolanda's business records and her past yields missing documents, suspicious expenditures, and funds that can't be accounted for in her history of her doing stuff at her previous employer. Yolanda, in the very next scene, denies the wrongdoing and promises to recover the missing records. Dun, dun, dun. Next scene is Selena playing the Houston Astrodome, causing Abraham to praise her for breaking down cultural and racial barriers. Very pointed scene there. On March 31st, 1995, Selena meets Yolanda at a Corpus Christi Motel to collect her missing business records, but is shot dead by Yolanda after an argument. This is done through a montage. Very quick, rapid cuts. Yolanda crying in the car while pressing a gun to her head. Friends and family and bandmates sobbing in the hotel hallway when they learn the news. This Pretty is, sure that was hospital. Yeah, I, I, did I say hospital hallway? I thought I did. You said hotel. Oh, 
so, uh, there's also um, news announcers overcutting all of the imagery, which I thought was a, a very powerful choice. Most of the choices were done out of necessity. Uh, the cast only wanted to do one take. They found these scenes emotionally draining. Now, the film concludes with fans mourning Selena with a candlelight vigil as a montage of archival footage of the real Selena performing closes out the film. Moving on to the development of the film, following Selena's sudden death, eight unauthorized biographies, six documentaries, and a swarm of think pieces were produced. Also, two film studios were in pre-production for a Selena biopic, neither with the involvement of Selena's estate. This pushed Abraham to begin producing a biopic within weeks of her death. Uh, he claims he primarily produced the film in order to squash the flurry of false rumors that kept germinating after uh, Selena's death. And he also said that the decision to do this film was very difficult for him, which, based on some of the very mercenary aspects of Abraham's character that I've read, makes me a bit suspicious. I don't know how you feel about it. He's definitely a complicated man. I do believe him when he says that this was like launching himself into the control of Selena's estate and her business affairs was one of his ways of handling grief because he did attack it with a passion. But he was also very protective of the family's business interests while she was still alive, too. I think that might just be a part of his character. And he did freeze Chris out of the estate. Kind of, sort of. Chris has a cut of 25%, but no control over image or likeness. And he'd been trying to start up his own project based on a book that he wrote. And Abraham sued him and got the uh, project squashed. They're actually going to court over that one again next month. Abraham was approached by producer uh, Maksuma Esparza, and he's the one who struck the deal, granting Abraham script approval and veto power over creative decisions. Which I am sure he used. <laughs> Rob Reiner was one of the first directors approached to helm the film, but was turned away after the critical and commercial failure of North. After that, they tried to find, you know, a Latino man to handle the film. Solid choice. Now, Louis Valdez and Edward James almost himself were considered to direct, uh, direct the film. But as far as a push, Gregory Nava. Uh, Abraham disliked Nava for his ego, but was eventually talked into it. Nava spent hours interviewing Selena's family and bandmates before writing the script. Abraham objected to a couple of scenes in this. Primarily, his main stumbling block was the depiction of the elopement. Yeah, he always wanted Selena to be portrayed as a very wholesome figure. He knew that little girls looked up to her and like saw themselves in her, and he didn't want to put up the message that eloping was something that they should be excited about going and doing themselves. So I think eventually they talked him down about like portraying that because it did really happen as you know an emotionally charged scene and get making it like complex and not necessarily like. It definitely doesn't come across as aspirational. No, it doesn't. And based on what I read, Nava's main push is that it humanized Selena, which he considered a priority, and he wanted Abraham to consider a priority. Uh, casting and shooting. Over 21,000 women and girls auditioned for Selena, uh, combining both the young Selena and the adult one. This is the biggest audition since Scarlett O'Hara and Gone with the Wind, which is a weird record to top. Selma Hayek was approached uh, in the beginning to play Selena. 
However, Hayek turned it down according to her saying that she felt it was too soon. And also Hayek was pursuing a biopic of Frida Kahlo. This is one of Selma Hayek's passion projects. She eventually got it made in the early 2000s and she felt nervous about playing two iconic Latin American women. Jennifer Lopez denies Hayek's account of this on multiple areas. Uh, most of the cast, including Lopez and Almost, had already appeared in Nava's 1995 film, My Family, which I think contributes to what I consider one of the film's principal assets, just the easy rapport between the cast. There's so many scenes of them just sort of like hanging out in the tour bus and cracking each other up, not only as a family, but also the scenes where Chris and Selena are falling in love with each other. And I think that's one of the main reasons why, despite the fact that this movie often feels very movie-ish, as you put it, it also feels genuine at the same time, which is weird. Yeah, the chemistry of the cast definitely sells it. I know that there was uh, controversy over the decision of casting Jennifer Lopez to play Selena because, you know, she's not Mexican, she's Puerto Rican. She doesn't really look like her that much. Like, she's got the curvy figure, but, like, her face is very different. And, you know, hair and makeup and costuming did a lot to get the physical resemblance down. But I think she sells it mostly in, like, character. She's got that sort of bubbly, charming likableness about her where she draws your eye. And then also, at this point in her career, J-Lo was a dancer primarily. She wasn't a singer yet. And that does come across, I think, in her performance because she treats the microphone like an accessory. But Selena had very, like, notable and iconic dance moves that she did and J-Lo studied her very carefully to get those down and she conveys Selena as much in movement as she does in anything else so I think her acting performance in it was stellar. One thing that I kept running into is Mexican media just being furious over Lopez's casting because she's a New Yorker of Puerto Rican descent and Selena is a Texan of Mexican descent. However Lopez did live with the Quintanilla family during the filmmaking process and she readily won them over they were stunned by how she was able to mimic selena's mannerisms and while she doesn't look very much like her i do find her very believable as her yeah yeah no she got her down as someone who has spent far too many hours on youtube watching selena performances like she does an excellent job recreating them on a semi-related note uh, john seda who played chris spent a lot of time with chris perez to get his mannerisms down and as i mentioned earlier perez does cameo in the film whenever they zoom in on the guitar parts which wasn't planned. Sita is not much of a guitar player, so he uh, sort of tricked Perez into cameoing into the film. He uh, dragged him on set, and he's like, hey, can you show me how to do that finger-tapping thing? And then lead over to the director and be like, zoom in. <laughs> I did not know about that. That makes me really happy. When Chris was live-tweeting, he, he approved of John Sita's casting as him, took it as a compliment. Sita's a very handsome man. And, yep. and those arms. <laughs> Lopez was initially going to sing the songs herself, but Nava ultimately decided to have her lip sync instead. As you mentioned, she only has three notes. I mean, good call. Like, I've heard Jennifer Lopez singing some Selena songs. She's done tributes and stuff. And she does actually sound quite a bit like her, like the, just the pure quality of sound of her voice. But she doesn't have her power. I think it's a good decision. Definitely by my perspective, one thing about iconic musician biopics that I'm not crazy about is picking the A-list actor and then having them do karaoke renditions of the iconic musician's big hits. 
I yeah, I don't understand that trend. I know lots of people consider it like very endearing, but I'm just like, why are you having Joaquin Phoenix go on stage and warble his way through these Johnny Cash songs? I know that he's not hitting bum notes, but the reason that I'm interested in this Johnny Cash movie is because I like Johnny Cash as a singer and a performer, and that should be in the movie. I could spend a lot of time talking about Judy Garland and Renee Zellweger right now, but we should probably get back on task about Selena. I want to talk a bit about the direction of this film. Nava is not like Alfred Hitchcock or Wes Anderson or, or Tim Burton, where you know it's him within 20 seconds. But And this is not a film that demands big auteur theory practitioners, but Nava directs this with a sure hand. This film flows very steadily. I was particularly impressed by lots of little details. Like there's a scene very early on in the film where Abraham is just like running through the restaurant, cleaning up like a broken plate and barking orders to his staff and having an argument with his wife about pushing the music on the kids and quitting his job. And there's this very nimble dolly work that gives Gives you a good idea of what it's like to work in a kitchen where everybody's yelling at everybody and it's just barely controlled chaos. It's very nicely done. Yeah, it gets the frenetic energy down. One of Nava's more interesting decisions is his use of split screen. He does that during the almost riot that Selena calms down. And once again, in the final scene where they're mourning Selena and... Split screen is tough because it is something that demands you to notice it. It is very filmmaky. It can pull you out of the movie. Brian De Palma usually uses it very well. That scene in Carrie, you know, the pig's blood scene and then the massacre afterwards. But it's hard to do that without it coming off as stagey. And most of the rest of the Selena, the direction is very invisible except for there. But a bold choice, and I applaud him for that. Also, his use of dissolves. He likes using dissolves and not only for scenes where he wants to imply that time has passed, which is usually when you throw that one out. Next thing I want to bring up is the cast. We've talked about Jennifer Lopez a little bit already, but get into that a little bit more because musician biopics only need to do one thing right in order to be successful and to get award season buzz. The lead needs to do a convincing impersonation of the musician that the audience finds compelling. And that's what Lopez does. During that period where she was dating Ben Affleck, everyone was kind of turning on J-Lo. And we're in a period where she just came back in Hustlers and it was like, oh yeah, she's a great actress. But yeah, J-Lo sells the hell out of this movie. And another thing that she shares with Selena that you mentioned earlier is Selena's natural charisma where the eye just drips to her and she makes you want to like her. And J-Lo has that on her own in spades and is able to convey that in the film very convincingly. Yep, absolutely. The reason this film works, if it works to you at all, is because of Jennifer Lopez's performance. Next up is Edward James Olmos as Abraham. On set, he was considered something of a father figure. A lot of people said that he held the film together. He gained 40 pounds to be in this movie. Uh, 50 pounds, actually. Oh, I read 40, but still, yeah, there's one scene where he's like getting out of bed with his shirt off. And he's like, wow, Olmos is a lot chunkier than he, than he usually is. And uh, this is a difficult performance and it might be the toughest performance in the film because Abraham is this giant control freak but you also have to give the impression that he is the loving father who cares for his daughter even if he is using her to live vicariously through his shattered dreams of being a doo-wop singer. 
It's a really interesting portrayal because sometimes he's the closest thing the movie has to a villain because he's, you know, he gets in the way of the love story, which the audience is definitely meant to root for. And yeah, there's some complexities around his decision to sabotage the family's economic security for shooting for their dreams, but there's also the huge payoff of it worked and they achieved their dreams. Not to mention that he was willing to torpedo the band in order to break up Selena's relationship with Chris. Yeah, so he's a very complex figure. And then also he executive produced the movie, too. And had veto power over creative decisions. So this is a version of Abraham that the actual Abraham is okay with. Yeah, I'm always kind of in awe that he opens up enough about even the things that, I don't know, I wouldn't necessarily want to admit to. (laughs) Uh, And we have Constance Marie as Marcella uh, Quintanilla. Uh, She auditioned for Selena herself. She is only four years older than Jennifer Lopez. And for most of the movie, the hair and makeup department is straining as hard as they can to make her look older than she actually is. Although they do do a pretty good job of uh, copying Marcella's fashions in the different time periods. But uh, the actor is a bit smaller than she was. She was a heavier woman than that at the time. You know, they give her these rumpled, loose-fitting clothing and, you know, big Coke bottle glasses. But then there's a scene where, you know, Selena is crying on her lap. And it's like, wow, those are the legs of a woman who's not 30 yet. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, John Cena is Chris Perez. It's a necessary part once again the chemistry is what sells this movie just the way the characters are interacting with each other and the most believable aspects of their romance is just the way that they're making each other laugh it's very casual and i think it's well done and it's funny shines the best i think absolutely i also love seeing like the tweets and stuff where chris talks about like his courtship with selena um he said that the scene in the tour bus where they kiss for the first time is like yeah that happened selena made the first move i was kind of intimidated by her because, you know, Selena. That's another of the scenes that feels very movie, but also very genuine because they get up and she's like trying to push him into dancing with her. And he's like, yeah, this is the part where they kiss, isn't it? And yes, it is. But it's so cute. It is super cute. And Lupe Ontiveros is Yolanda Saldivar. This actress was 54 at time of filming. Yolanda was 34 when she killed Selena. You saw this as an intentional dig at Yolanda. Yeah, I mean, she wasn't an attractive woman. You know, she was kind of dowdy and stuff, which could have had something to do with her projecting so much onto this much like younger celebrity that she was totally obsessed with. But I still think casting someone who is uh, 20 years older than her is kind of... That's an insult. Yeah, I don't want to knock Lupe's performance here. It is a very deliberately minor part. You can tell that the filmmakers did not want to emphasize Selena's death, not only in the way that they constructed the film, but also how late into the film that Yolanda shows up. They wait until the last possible moment that they can get away with before she appears on screen. Like the elopement, Selena's death was something that Abraham initially didn't want to put in the film, and the director had to talk him into it because it was dramatically necessary. Yeah, the next person I want to bring up, Jackie Guerra, Suzette, who you don't like in this film. You think she's a bit shrill. Yeah, I, I like the real Suzette Quintanilla. I've listened to interviews with her and stuff. I think she's funny and charismatic, and I wasn't 
crazy fond of Jackie Guerra's performance. The filmmakers like Jackie Guerra because on her audition, she lied about knowing how to play the drums because she wanted the part real bad. And after they cast her, she admitted that. And instead of finding somebody else, they just gave her drum lessons. Oh, that's cute. And Selena's backing band, three of them are playing themselves. Yep. Which I think is a nice touch. Yeah, especially when you can like see them doing the performance sequences and stuff, you know, like going right back into their old stage performances and stuff. Pete was backup singer and dancer with Selena, so watching him do those moves with J-Lo is kind of cool. Yeah, that was definitely done for the super fans, because I didn't notice. I did. <laughs> <laughs> All right, reception for the film. It was made with a budget of $20 million. It only made 35.5. It was considered something of an underperformer, but it did very well on video. The soundtrack did a bit better. It peaked at 20 on the Billboard Hot 100. The uh, soundtrack is mostly pulled from live sets. You mentioned that one of the touches you like the most in the film is that whenever they're performing live, they don't use canned studio music. They use actual live performances, yep. which not every musical biopic does. Yeah, and um, some of their songs, you know, that they played, like, a lot on the road, they changed over time. That happens with live with bands that play live a lot. They just expand on things. And then when Chris joined the band, he was a different kind of guitarist from who they'd been working with before. So, like, he, he added a lot to songs like Bailas de Cumbia. He wasn't in the band when they recorded that song, so the studio version sounds really different from the live version. Like, the live version of La Carcaccia, that can be up to upwards of nine minutes long, and they used some of the, like, instrumental bits from the live version in the Monterey scene that isn't in the studio version. So I, I liked touches like that. Yeah, based on the snatches I could see of... Chris's guitar playing. He's from a metal background, specifically a neoclassical hair metal background, like every metal guitarist in the 80s, seemingly. He wanted to be Eddie Van Halen at least a little bit. And, you know, that has lots of tremolo picking and lots of double-handed finger tapping, which does have roots in Spanish music that is all rooted in the Iberian Peninsula. That being said, that isn't necessarily tied in with the type of music that Selena did, so it would change the color of the performances. Yeah, um, you met, like you mentioned earlier that Tejano is kind of a, a fusion style of music to begin with, and like by the time the band got around to Amor Prohibido, like they're just dancing between all these different genres that they're overplaying over like the basic Tejano structure and. It's such a cool album. It's so rich. Every song sounds pretty different from the last one. Like, A.B. had a lot of uh, hip-hop influences that he was bringing in. So we got that. We got Chris's metal. We got Selena's love of, like, disco and then the regular Tejano. And it's just such a cool, diverse album. Reviews for the film were mostly positive. Just about every Eddie mentioned that it was a star-breaking term for Jennifer Lopez. As of this recording, Jennifer Lopez is one of the most famous people on the planet and has been for decades, but at this point, she still wasn't, like, the biggest name in the world. Everybody saw that she was a rising star, but she was only a couple years removed from being a fly girl and in living color. This is the one that, if it didn't quite break her out, this is the one that lit the fuse. If it wasn't her Titanic, it was her Romeo plus Juliet. She was also a dancer in some Janet Jackson music videos. If someone dances in a Janet Jackson video and it's peripherally related to this podcast and Sylvan's on it, we go imagine it. <laughs> <laughs>
The film did get some criticism. Not that much, but it did. Mostly for its simplified plot, lack of nuance, and sanitized aspect of Selena's biography. All are elements of the iconic musician biopic. I think that Lopez's performance and the rapport between the cast and crew overwhelms it. I am a hard sell on these types of movies, so I can't imagine it's a big stumbling block for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I, I watched this movie to enjoy myself and to gush over Selena. I don't watch it to necessarily deconstruct her life. It did get a couple of minor awards. The only major one it got was a Golden Globe nod for Lopez for Best Actress in a Musical or Comedy. No Oscar attention. But for now, let's start talking about themes. The main thing I want to talk about, which I've been threading throughout this whole thing, is just musician biopic cliches. Because one of the main things about these types of movies that I just don't like is that most of them want to cram the entire life of an iconic musician into a narratively satisfying three acts that is less than two hours long. And in order to do that, you have to cut a lot of stuff out, a lot of stuff that is the most interesting stuff. Yeah, this one definitely has some some big time jumps. Um, it does try to stick to, um, like, their vignettes, but they kind of always go together, at least. If you're watching a lot of these, they're brought up, Ray, Walk the Line. A lot of the time, it feels like they're just sort of checking boxes. Anyone's life, I feel, can be turned into an interesting story. And you take these people who have lived very complicated lives because anybody who becomes as famous as, say, Johnny Cash or Ray Charles or Selena is going to have a lot of complex aspects of their life. And a lot of these films do them the disservice by sanding them down, at least by my standing. And I do think that Selena avoids most of the traps that those movies fall into, even though it does some of them. It relies upon montages a lot in order to keep the films rolling, although I do think it's used more skillfully than in some of the ones that I brought up. I mean, for one thing, the montages are generally an opportunity to showcase music, and like this movie gives you a lot of Selena music. Yeah, one thing about iconic musician biopics that drives me nuts every time they do it that Selena doesn't do is whenever they're segging into one of the big songs of the musician's career, they're like having a conversation and they just have like sort of like this half-assed remark and there's like, oh, wait, you're saying that you want to be rocked. How about we will, we will rock you. And then it immediately cuts the queen performing. We will rock you live. And that drives me nuts. <laughs> That's not how a song happens. <laughs> Can we do a scene where they have a hard time putting the song together and it's not working at first, but they keep grinding away and it eventually turns into it. They do do that actually in, in Selena. You might, the, the scene where um, she steals uh, Suzette's chips. A.B. and Pete are working on writing Camilla Floor and they're struggling with it and they're ripping A.B. on his lyrics like, wait, so the flower should be plastic? <laughs> it's like, no, but love shouldn't die. That's what I'm getting at. Art is a process, damn it. <laughs> Talk a little more about Abraham's control over Selena's legacy. I think I want to hand more of that over to you. Yes, because of Selena, the series on Netflix, I ended up falling down a Google hole and looking into this a little more. I guess one of Abraham frames this as a thing he did to cope after losing his daughter. He was very enraged in seeing bootleg merch about Selena hitting the streets like in the immediate aftermath of her death, and he just got very litigious. And 
within a month of her death, I think, he had a lawyer brought in to write up a contract. He got control over her likeness and image and gave percentages to Suzette and AB because they were making the music with her, you know, part of the band. And then he gave Chris 25%, which is, he frames as a, a more generous, like, equivalent of what Selena would have been making where she's still alive. But then only he can control how she is depicted in media, like doing projects like books and films and things like that. Initially, Chris was just, like, spiraling and depressed and couldn't really publicly open up about Selena's death and his life with her and everything. He said that he had, like, drug problems for a while because of the depression and this was he was made to sign this contract so soon after her death that he wasn't even like in a a right state of mind according to him so he just signed it without really thinking and like as he started to heal he wrote a book about his life with selena and the family didn't object to him publishing that it became a problem when he was optioning the the book to be made into a tv series at that point, Abraham had already been working on the early stages of Selena the series, the Netflix show, and he saw Chris's television show as competition. So he sued him and it ended up shutting down Chris's TV show. So Chris has not been involved in Selena the series. Uh, he never met with the actor who's playing him in that, um, didn't look at any scripts or anything. And the Quintanillas and Chris have been like snarking each other on social media. And uh, Chris is suing over the contract that he signed saying that you know he wasn't in a sound state of mind so it should be thrown out uh, like Abraham was basically preying on him in his grief and also he suspects that he's been screwed out of money because so he wants all of the financial records to be opened up and looked at because if he's been making 25% of Selena's net worth since her death he doesn't think the numbers quite add up and uh, according to him he's been paid 3 million and that probably is a little low for Selena's 25% of Selena's net worth since 1995. There's always re-releases of albums, of concerts, the Selena Mack line, the Fiesta de la Flor, the Giaches Music Festival. There's a museum, there's the Hollywood star on the Walk of Fame, the wax sculpture. Like there's, there's a lot of, if anything, I think she's more famous and well-known than she was at the time of her death. She keeps coming back up, uh, just... Earlier this year, the Latinos for Trump group wanted to have a rally at her memorial site, and the family. Oh Jesus! Really? Yeah, they they're like hell no. <laughs> Apparently, that was one of the only things that uh, the Quintanilla family and Chris was firmly agreeing on. <laughs> well, there's not always bad blood between them. There's periods where they do seem to get along, but right now is not one of them. Yeah, one thing I wanted to talk to you about briefly, because this is a way out of my lane bit, but I feel I'd be doing the film a disservice if I didn't at least touch upon it. There is a running theme of Mexican-Americans in the United States and how it's sort of a neither fish nor fowl thing. The Anglos will never accept, never accept you, but if you've been in the United States for generations, the Mexicans know that you're not one of them either, and it's Pointed out in a couple of scenes, uh, the most charming one is when Abraham is giving a monologue and almost is using all of his acting ability to do this thing about how 
Mexican-Americans have to work twice as hard to get half as much, and Selena's just sort of goofing off in the car while it's happening. Yeah, her and A.B. are making fun of their dad for being a nerd. You get the sense that he's given them this speech many times, and they're just sick of hearing it. Also, that scene where Selena's going dress shopping with her friend for the Grammys, and the snooty sales lady thinks that this the Latino lady can't afford the dresses, is sort of giving her the bum's rush. And it's sort of an angle on that famous scene in Pretty Woman, because after that, Selena gets sworn by her friends, and the sales lady's like, oh, wait, this is a celebrity. She's like, yeah, no dress for you. Yeah, it's cute because when I first saw the movie when I was a kid, I thought that the lady just assumed that she couldn't afford it because she was wearing jeans and a t-shirt so she didn't look rich. I missed the racial overtones of that and then I watched it again as an adult and I was like, oh right, duh. I think it's worth pointing out that it, it was kind of rare for a movie to be made with like so few white people in it and they're all, all of the white people are bad guys. Yeah, uh- <laughs> Getting back to the furor of uh, the Mexican media over Jennifer Lopez's casting, the studio did push for a white woman to play Selena. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad they held firm and uh, didn't have that happen. Yeah, once again, we're both white people. I'm sure no matter how sympathetic we are and how much research we do, we can't talk about this by ourselves for too long without showing our own ass, but... Selena was a very important and continues to be a very important cultural figure to Latina girls in the United States for the reasons that Abraham's uh, monologue gets at, the tension of existing between two worlds and two cultures. And she just beautifully navigated both of them, both of these groups that had hostilities. You know, are you Mexican enough? Are you American enough? And she charmed everybody over. And like, there's something very aspirational and loving in that. And I did show my own ass because in this earlier in this recording, I referred to Selena as second generation. And in the film itself, it is said that the Quintanillas have been in the country for generations, centuries even. So she's not second generation. I really should have caught that when you said that. Oops, I knew that. <laughs> yeah, you should have caught me. <laughs> Your fault. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. I, re- I remember, too, when I was at, like, the height of my Selena obsession as a middle schooler, my cousin, who's five years older than me, mentions that she, like, remembered when Selena died because she had no idea who she was, but she remembered when, like, the Latina girls showed up to school, like, wearing their Selena t-shirts in tears, and they were inconsolable. And she was, like, trying to understand, like, it's a singer, though. I know it's sad. And, like, no, but you don't understand. There's no one like Selena for us. That's everything in my notes. Is there anything about the Selena film that you would like to bring up before we wrap up? So this one's just a little petty, but again, I mentioned that when I was in middle school, I was very annoying with my obsession, so I understand why people got sick of hearing me talk about Selena all the time. But I remember at one point, you like were just done with my rants and were like, listen, I get that it's sad, okay? I get that it's sad that she died. But what was so special about her that you're giving her all this attention? And I kind of froze up because I couldn't articulate just why she was such a special singer. I just knew that she was. Well, I can articulate it now. And we've had a whole podcast about it. And it's very, very satisfying for me. I don't remember that. I'm not saying it didn't happen. That's very characteristically me. (laughs) Selena was special and other people noticed besides me. Okay. (laughs) Okay, so yeah, we've demonstrated that, if nothing else. (laughs) That is our episode. Good night, everybody.